0: This podcast was recorded and produced on the unceded lands of the Barramadigal of the Darug Nation, the Gadigal and the Wongal of the Eora Nation, and the Turbul and Yagara land in Mianjin. I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Always was, always will be. Aboriginal land. Hi and welcome to a special bonus episode in this season of The Colour Cycle, a podcast that aims to disrupt cultural whitewashing and provide strategies for achieving cultural and racial equity in the creative sector. I'm Lena Nahlus, the CEO of Diversity Arts Australia, or Darts for short. It's no secret that Australia's cultural institutions are based on colonial foundations, or that we have some way to go before art spaces reflect the reality of our communities. So the question we must ask is, when do we reform a system, an organisation or an institution, and when is it time to dismantle and rebuild? This was a key point of conversation at the Racism in the Arts Reform or Revolution panel which took place in 2020 and was hosted by SAMAG or Sydney Arts Management Advisory Group in collaboration with DARTs. I was joined by a proud Wiradjuri woman and executive producer of Black Dance, Marinda Donnelly film director, performer and storyteller Rosie Lord, and independent curator, facilitator and co-founder of PARI, Tien Zhang, to discuss how to enact change in the Australian arts and screen industries. 2020 has been a very significant year indeed, not only because of COVID, but in terms of the very public activism and discourse about race racism, exclusion, particularly in the arts and screen sectors. There's been the Black Lives Matters movement in Australia which has put a focus on state violence against First Nations peoples and anti-Black racism. The racialisation of the COVID-19 pandemic has resulted in a significant rise in anti-Asian racism globally and locally, and this is documented in a recent report released by the Asian Australian Alliance that Diversity Arts was proud to support. At the beginning of this pandemic, I remember thinking that racial equity would be viewed as kind of secondary or divisive to the so-called more important work of sector recovery. This is a common excuse that we often get for not addressing inequity. If anything, during COVID, the opposite has happened. A little bit about diversity arts. We're the national voice for ethno-cultural and migrant diversity in the arts, screen and creative sectors. And we also work in partnership and in solidarity with other social movements and groups. As non-Anglo migrant settlers on this land, we have distinctive issues of racial equity to contend with. And the experience of current and historical colonisation, dispossession, abuse, and injustice of First Nations people cannot be conflated with settler migrant experiences as part of a narrative of multiculturalism. I'd like to thank our excellent panellists, Marinda Donnelly, Rosie Lord and Tian Zhang for agreeing to participate in this discussion, but not only that, for the labour that they've put in to developing and framing this discussion for all of you. So the first area that we wanted to talk about, of course, is the, the theme of tonight's discussion. When do we reform a system, an organisation or an institution, or when do we dismantle it and rebuild it? And I'm going to start with Marinda. Marinda, you've talked about how Australian cultural institutions uphold colonial structures. And I wanted to ask you how this is done, what the implications are for Indigenous people, and, and about the historical context of this.
1: Yeah, thanks, Lena. Yeah, so I uh, would just like to start by acknowledging that I'm presenting today from the homelands of the Turrbal and the Yagara here in Mianjin where I live and work and also um, just want to acknowledge all of the pioneers throughout our most recent arts and cultural, I guess, uh, groundswell and uprising, particularly over the last 40 years and our founder Marilyn Miller because uh, without them and without the likes of her in the Aboriginal art sector, um, i wouldn 't be here today, so yeah, Lena, I had a, I had a chat with my elders before coming onto this panel tonight, and I, I started with talking to my children, my kid 's poppy, Bob Weatherall, who 's been uh, a campaigner for indigenous human rights for four decades or longer. And I said to him, Poppy, what is the most racist thing that you can, that comes to mind in the arts? And he said, well, there's really obvious things like, you know, blackface and the portrayal of blackface in theatre and cartoons, but that the original sin is the removal of human remains and our ancestors' remains in the name of art into galleries and museums and that's still a problem to this day Um, and we had a really big conversation about how our ancestors' remains can't go back to country if they're in storage rooms in museums on the other side of the world and I then had a chat um, with some more people in the community about this idea of the removal of ancestral remains and also the removal of our cultural artefacts and objects, because often what you'll hear in our communities is is that culture governs our art. And so my question, particularly being an Aboriginal woman from New South Wales, from the East Coast, where um, the majority of cultural artefacts from my nation and surrounding regions are held in storage in different vaults in London and different places in Europe. So how do we practice our culture and how do we make art if it's locked up and if it's been removed? And so thinking about 250 years of colonisation in Australia and the removal of our culture and the removal of our ancestral remains really puts into perspective the idea of racism in the arts.
0: Thanks, Marinda. Thank you for sharing that with us. I guess, Tien, it's a nice little segue into a question for you, as someone who works in the visual arts, about the limitations of creating change within the existing structures and institutions, when this is not something that's just happened in the past, but this is something that, as Mirinda said, continues to be the case. And I thought if you could as well tell us about the rationale behind establishing PARI, the Parramatta-based artist-run initiative? I guess in answer to your question, you know,
2: is it like reform or revolution? It's sort of both, but I sort of err on the side of revolution because change is really slow, especially when it comes to institutions. And um, I guess part of the reason that I was interested in setting up PARI and I and I didn't do it alone I worked with five other people and now we're a team of 11 sort of working in a very in a horizontal collective structure is that we we wanted to have something that was independent in Western Sydney if you're not familiar with Western Sydney it's sort of dominated by a lot of art institutions and museums that are council run and we wanted to create something where we had autonomy and had control over how things were presented and how things were run as well. In thinking through whether you rebuild or whether you reform, when we actually created PARI, it was really interesting that because we were starting from scratch, we were, I guess, like thinking through every single aspect of the organization, of the gallery, of how we run, how we want to run, who we're for, all of those things, what the program is going to be like. We actually had to think about all of those things because it, nothing existed. And I think that's the beauty of starting something is that you actually have the chance to look through it all and to say, actually, you know, this model that is exists, that exists elsewhere, it actually doesn't work here. And so it was really nice to be able to reimagine what, I guess, a, a gallery space or a community space might be for Parramatta. In saying that, I think reform is possible. And I know that there's probably a lot of arts managers listening because I know what SAMAG stands for. And so I don't think that reform is impossible, but it's just really slow. And when you think about, you know, what Marinda sort of talked about before, about the origins of some of these, structures of these institutions, particularly in the visual arts and museum sector, the origins are colonial. And if the origins are colonial, then, you know, that legacy is passed down. As much as you want to try and fight it, there'll always be the people that are wanting to try and fight for those existing structures and those old ways. And so it's quite difficult. And I'll just say one last thing about reform is that It actually needs to happen at all levels. I mean, reform isn't just sort of hiring a bunch of uh, non-white, non-European staff. It's actually looking and interrogating the board, the directors, the way things are run, how things are framed, the marketing, the hierarchy itself. And I think that a lot of people aren't invested in that type of reform, but that's actually what the future holds, I think.
0: I wanted to mention, Rosie, that to congratulate you, because you've recently had one of your recent films picked up by Netflix, which is massive. You've spoken about how the Australian screen sector can be based on a kind of a a very culturally specific colonial model of competition. Does some of what Tien's talked about, about the difficulties of working within Structures that were premised on on being colonial structures that are set up in a particular way—is it actually possible to work within kind of these systems and simultaneously to to kind of change it? And how how do you do that? I just thought I'd give you an easy question, you <laughs> know, just
3: basic <laughs> <laughs> just a basic <laughs> one. <laughs> um, no, one hundred percent. I agree with everything that um, Tiana and Miranda have already said. It's just. So well, the whole of Australia has been Australia as we know it has been established on these colonial structures and the arts industries are um, hold that legacy. The film sector um, replicates the competition obviously it 's a reality that there 's a scarcity of resources and it 's a small market that we work in it 's also a reality that there is a bottleneck in terms of career pathways through the screen sector but I think even though there is that reality, there is a fallacy that people keep reinforcing that there's only room for one person of difference in each of the different places and that that one person is sufficient to be that voice for all difference. I have had the, the mixed blessing of working inside Screen Australia as well and um, working on the inside to try and enact some of the change. I say it's a mixed blessing because it's a huge job and anyone who works inside these agencies are just do a phenomenal job. I was always outspoken about my, my personal ethos around diversity being first, even before Screen Australia asked me to come and work inside. And uh, when I joined... Um, they asked what I wanted to do and I was very clear that that was going to be my priority in terms of enabling diverse filmmakers to get opportunities through. They were incredibly supportive. Um, The Screen Agency itself has a legacy and a history of trying to support people from a range of backgrounds. Obviously, the Indigenous Department was set up 25 years ago and Penny Smolikon, who currently runs it, is doing an exceptional job of creating the space resources and support for Indigenous filmmakers and people like Narita Moore and Sally Kaplan have created uh, initiatives like developing the developer and supporting a range of diverse filmmakers, the machines are very slow to change in general and whenever there is competition, everyone who is not straight, white, able-bodied and male starts behind the starting block. So there is an automatic disadvantage that happens uh, when people are being asked to prove their worth or their calibre. And that is a system that does need dismantling. At the same time, it is the current system that we have. So, like Tian, I believe that both reform and revolution need to be taking place within the arts and that we need need change to be happening across all of the spectrums and across all of the spheres for everything to happen simultaneously. And lots of people are trying. I just hope that we can get there quickly and we don't need to take another 200 years to do it.
0: Thanks, Rosie. Marinda, how can we imagine transformation and alternatives to the current systems? And I'm thinking here about the process of radical futuring.
1: Yeah, really good question, Lena. Um, So during COVID, Black Dance really tried to provide different online platforms for artists that we're feeling really isolated at a local um, and national level and we also have regular catch-ups with our small to medium self-determined indigenous peer organizations as an organization that has a national voice we were also part of the industry catch-ups um, with the other peak bodies and so For the first time ever, we really, um, you know, we got a really different understanding or I, I got a very different understanding of the way that other peak bodies work and what started to happen was the peak bodies that met regularly with government and different politicians would share the information back to the rest of the peak bodies about what was going to happen next and one of the big things that came up for us was <clears throat> at a certain point um, I remember Evelyn from LPA said, you know, what the government's going to ask next is for the recovery strategy. And that got me thinking um, very deeply and, and, and I started to talk um, in the gatherings, in those different gatherings that I mentioned before. Um, about recovery to artists and other organisations and what would that actually mean? And what where we kind of landed was that there's actually no independent or small to medium First Nations dance sector to recover. And by that, I don't mean that there's not a sector because obviously there's hundreds and hundreds of First Nations independent artists and lots and, you know, there's over 500 community dance groups, there's at least 100,000 cultural dance practitioners. So, but But in terms of embedded funding and multi-year funding, there's none. There's no small to medium Indigenous dance companies on multi-year funding. So what did we have to recover when the modelling that was being done by different funding organisations and states and territories arts funding agency was based on the modelling of small to medium companies or the majors. So what I understood was that this was um, an unlikely opportunity to drive home really fiercely that for recovery at Black Dance, it means fundamentally build. I think it's probably common knowledge that, the First Nations independent and small to medium um, dance sector is one of the most under-resourced sectors in the whole country. So, it struck me that we really needed to leverage um, this moment to go, actually, we to recover, <laughs> we need something to recover from. And um, we came up with the term refuturing because artists didn't want things to go back to the way that they were. The 2016 Australia Council report, I think it was um, Showcasing Creativity, actually interviewed 135 percenters across Australia, and less than 2% of all of the work they programmed in 2016 or 2015 was First Nations. And when we broke down theatre and dance in that 2%, (laughs) there was absolutely no independent First Nations dance that was programmed in 2015. So in terms of the question about recovery to the sector, I've heard a lot of uh, arts provocateurs, First Nations leaders say we need to blow, blow it all up and we need to start again and we need to think about different ways that, um, we value what we make, the way that we're accountable to community, the way that we exchange um, in a non-transactional way. And so all of these kinds of divergent ways of thinking about recovery then started to formulate in this idea of refuturing. And, and I certainly don't have all of the answers, but I think that there's, there's definitely been... A lot of people, presenters, Indigenous, non-Indigenous, um, artists, companies that have um, started, to, I've started to hear them say that really what they want to hear is a national conversation led by First Nations artists about movement and energy that, that removes the capitalist hierarchical transactional nature of presenting and touring.
0: Thanks, Marinda that really resonates for us at Diversity Arts and when I came into this organisation after being kind of away from this kind of advocacy work for a few years, I found that um, we were very stuck and I'm specifically talking about ethnocultural migrant arts communities had were kind of stuck in um, only kind of I felt like having a conversation with government and that sense of we have to kind of fight to keep the the bit that we've got and the sector had been kind of quite decimated by the funding cuts to the Australia Council and we looked at kind of I guess Indigenous futurism um, and you know kind of speculative fiction and, and we were looking at how can we have these conversations where we take people outside of this present day that they're in and imagine what the possibilities are and I think that that is um, is indeed kind of quite radical because we're often in this stuck in this place where we have to, you know, write the submissions, respond to the inquiries, talk in the language that's already been determined for us. But what happens when we take ourselves outside of this? The the stories from the Future Project, which kind of combines speculative futures and also prospective futures, was about taking people outside of those spaces and consulting through, you know, a kind of creative series of activities to, to bring out alternatives that are not always easy to kind of bring out when you are working in this kind of traditional advocacy space. I want to turn now to talking a little bit about racial justice and what the role of the creative sector is in this. Tien, you've said that you actually that the creative sector, the arts and creative sector, have a really important role to play in Racial justice and do we in the arts and creative and screen sectors have a greater role to play than in other sectors? Um, yeah
2: I mean I think first, I just want to say that everyone has a responsibility to fight for racial justice, but in terms of you know the creative sector or the art sector, I feel that even more so because the creative sector and the art sector are I guess the champions of our national identity or our or even our individual identity when when we're growing up it's about the stories that we're told it's what we see on tv it's the picture books you know they tell us about the world but and about ourselves and so I think at least you know in terms of like the stories that we tell, uh, I think it's really important that the arts and creative sectors really consider how they do that and who they bring on to do that, you know, more so than say like the tech sector or, you know, other sectors. But actually, you know, compared to other sectors, the arts is actually really terrible uh, when it comes to, I guess, representation representation but also in leadership as well and it's interesting when you compare with other sectors like tech and startups and they understand the power of having you know diversity in all its forms in in decision making and and futuring and creativity they actually really fundamentally understand that and yet when it comes to the arts where creativity should be you know one of the most important things is it's actually quite homogenous. And I think that that, again, has to do with who people in power want to tell stories and what stories they want to tell, um, if that makes sense. Like, I don't think it's a coincidence that we're actually one of the worst um, at representation because I think that, yeah, it's, it's actually more than just about championing diverse ideas. It's actually about, you know, who tells
0: our stories. Thanks, Tien. It's not surprising that those stories and who tells them is, is very tightly controlled. We've got a question here, which is from Suzanne Pereira, which is: even though there's an agitation for revolution, quote, blowing the joint up, will it ever be possible while we're dealing with the lack of diversity on arts organization boards and in arts leadership in a sector? That was revealed in Diversity Arts as Shifting the Balance report. So, for those of you who don't know, we released a report last year called Shifting the Balance, which looked at over 200 leading arts organisations in Australia and nearly 2,000 leaders, and it measured cultural and linguistic diversity and found that in more than half of organisations had nobody from a culturally and linguistically diverse background in any leadership role, from boards to executive to management. And um, that on average there were eight percent culturally and linguistically diverse leaders, and we are thirty nine percent of the population. M- maybe this would be a good good one for you, Rosie, in terms of your work in you know with the Gender Matters Task Force and your work to increase diversity in the screen sector. How important is is leadership in this, in terms it's of bringing about change?
3: It's absolutely essential, and we won't see absolute meaningful change until there is accurate representation at all levels, particularly the top levels. There's a lot to be said for authentic understanding and lived experience. People who don't necessarily have lived experience of cultural difference or uh, different experiences of the world can be great allies, 100%, but they don't necessarily understand the nuance and the detail of what those experiences actually mean and how they manifest in someone's life and the, the domino effect. So i I 100% am for diversifying the whole thing and um, ultimately
0: blowing the joint up. <laughs> so we won't put that in our grant application. Um, <laughs> uh, I also had another question about, you know, how we can actually bring about change when we objectively don't have a lot of power, although, you know, I don't want to limit Power to institutional power either. I think that's problematic and we have to, and that's about the futures stuff and the futuring stuff. It's about thinking outside of that and not limiting ourselves to what could be possible. I wanted to talk a little bit now about safe spaces and how we create safe spaces, or when spaces are safe or when they're dangerous for indigenous people and and people of colour. We've had a discussion on the the panelists prior to this about what it feels like to be the only one, the only First Nations person or the only person of colour on an assessment panel, on a board, in a meeting, uh, within a project or or a company. And um, Tien, you've been quite vocal about this in the visual arts context. Like how do we create safe spaces in which to work and create? And how do we navigate unsafe spaces?
2: Oh, it's tricky. Um, It's so tricky. And I'm, you know, I'm definitely, I've definitely had a lot of experiences where I'm sort of the only, the only one in the room who's not white and male or white, I guess. And often I'm also, you know, the actual, actually the only woman of color and also the youngest person in the room. So there's a whole lot of, I guess, different levels of safety and not safe. In terms of creating safe spaces, I mean, this is like, this is something that I'm really conscious of as a curator, um, because I have artists that work with me and I bring them in and and I often, almost always bring them into an institutional context. And so for me, ensuring the safety of the artist, the cultural safety of the artist, is paramount. And it's, uh, I guess it's something that maybe comes with experience, but but it's, you know, there's some really key things like assuming that you don't know anything and just actually never assuming anything about somebody, even if it's something that you already read or someone's told you just, you know, you just don't assume and you take everything that someone says at face value as as being their truth and never denying that. Um, I think those things are really important. I guess I've also, you know, experimented with different structures where I've asked artists if they want to bring on another person, uh, often a curator or a writer, to look over um, any material that goes out, and that sort of that's helped sometimes to be able to have someone that they trust to come into the process, and they're always paid. Yeah, I go through a lot of levels and, and often it's, you know, thinking through my own experiences when I've been in unsafe environments and thinking about what I would have wanted or needed at that point and making sure that that's well resourced. Unfortunately for me, I'm doing, you know, the best that I can for the artists that I work with, um, but, you know, no one's really doing that for me within the institutions quite often. And so that's a really tricky situation for me to navigate and it is quite exhausting. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that there's a lot that institutions can do to create safe spaces and the mere fact of bringing in a curator that's not European doesn't guarantee a safe space for the curator and everyone on that team. Yeah. And and I think for me, when I'm taking on projects, I really think about how much energy I have to navigate this space, um, because by and large, the institutions that I work with are, you know, 90% plus sort of white and homogenous. And so that's something that I really take into account when I'm thinking through a project and if I'm gonna work with an organisation. Similarly, you know, in terms of like meetings and assessment rooms, If I'm, you know, the only person of colour, I'll sort of clock who might be potential allies. And I heard something really great today, actually, that a friend told me is the phrase allyship is a verb, not a noun. And so you could, you can verb be an ally at one point, but it is an ongoing thing and it's it's something it's trust that you build over time, and if just because you've done it once doesn't mean that you know you won't uh, make a mistake later on, but it's about you know being really honest with yourself and and listening really. I think it just comes down to listening and reflecting on yourself and how your own actions might cause potential harm and so if harm is done, I think owning up to it thinking it through and thinking how you can try and ensure that that doesn't happen again. Um, Some of those things are really important in terms of a process when working with, I guess, people of colour and and First Nations people.
0: Thanks, Tien. Um, There's a lot to think about there. We recently launched a creative equity toolkit. Again, we'll put the link in there. It's a really practical, actionable guide for, specifically for organisations in the arts and screen sectors about how to do this work. And we have a section on allyship and and actually that moves from the institutional to the individual showing my age. But in Australia, we tended more to use the term solidarity, you know, kind of working in solidarity and that kind of collective action. And sometimes I feel like when allyship is used, it's very much focused on the individual. And it doesn't necessarily, it's not the meaning of it. I think it's both. And I think it's about how institutions and organisations can act as allies or can act you know, what they can do, looking at their policies, looking at their structures, setting things up um, to be safer and also what individuals can do within the workplace. So, check check out that page on the Creative Equity Toolkit. Um, I do have a question for Tien, but I, I, I want to kind of follow on that um, train of thought first with Marinda um, about allyship and solidarity and whether working in solidarity and developing genuine partnerships can also create safe spaces within institutions and organisations? And and can this be done without losing creative control and autonomy? And I know you have an example of the global Indigenous project that Black Dance is a a part of.
1: Thanks, Lena. Yeah, um, on the issue of um, safe spaces, uh, one of the things that is really unsafe for me and it happens quite a lot is the um, being the only First Nations person at the table or in the conversation. And so the lived experience of Indigenous Australians is extremely diverse. Our art form and our practices is extremely diverse. It's probably going to take way too long to provide some examples of the diversity here in this conversation. But I do want to just say that having one person all the time speaking about things is really unsafe. You know, there has to be a diversity of voices and there has to be a diversity of practice and understanding and contextualization all the time. Um, In relation to um, the question, Lena, about allyship and working in partnership with different organisations and creating safe spaces, um, one of the things that, you know, Black Dance has been working on for a number of years um, is a partnership framework, and this involves the partner organisation undertaking a cultural competency audit or a racism audit. And this is a work in progress, you know, like we're a small part time team of four young people under the age of 40. So when we do a policy review or um, we attempt a really big piece of work like a partnership framework, um, it does take a really long time. So we are doing this piece of work and what that will enable, enable us to do as an organisation is ensure that any organisation that we're working with is culturally competent um, and they will have to fill out a template, this template of cultural competency and, or institutionalised racism and if they don't meet the baseline then we can't partner with them. And so, um, you know, once a partner organisation or an ally has met that, um, often the work that we do at Black Dance is quite invisible. A lot of even our own sector don't know about the partnership brokerage that we do behind the scenes. Um, For example, we worked recently with two really big dance organisations for about six months to develop their model that aspires to create a safe space within these big white institutions where there's Indigenous self-determination in the decision-making process of that organisation. And the um, idea of that is that also the organisation being culturally competent or anti-racist also then has to have its own understanding of the artists that they work with and their application of cultural protocols in the work that they create. And so all of these steps in this process and these policies take a really, really long time and they have come about as um, a result of wins but many failings, you know. And I think that one of the really big things that I've learned as a person who stepped into an arts organisation with absolutely no experience running an arts organisation whatsoever six years ago, what I've learned is that creating safe spaces takes a lot of conversations and a lot of clarity of process and roles and responsibilities. And that, that has to be reached, you know, with the collective understanding and having a consensus and, so, I think yeah the the biggest thing for us is making the time to do um, the analysis and have all
0: those conversations. Thank you so much. I think that is um you know many takeaways there, but taking the time to, to do the groundwork properly and having those conversations is really critical. There's no shortcuts you've got to, you've got to do that, and I yeah appreciate you sharing that We've got a few comment. So, Lynn Lobo said, wow, I've really wanted to blow the join up, so to speak. So good to hear that said out loud and know that other people feel that way. Thank you. And Julia asks, Tien, do you think that some kind of safe space protocols or, or procedures for institutions would help? And I feel like that's kind of been addressed a little bit um, with Marinda, but I don't know if you want to add, add to that. Tien or Marinda or even Rosie.
2: Um, I mean, I think what Mirinda's described is sounds amazing. And to be honest, I'm going to adopt that. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to add to that, Lena.
3: Um, But I think it's really important that whilst absolutely protocols are going to be useful, the biggest takeaway is going to be that every situation, every collaboration, every story, every endeavour is going to be different and it's going to need a bespoke approach. And that's why asking questions and listening a lot and working respectfully to come up with shared protocols within whatever that, that particular collective of artists is, is the most important thing to do. There's some clear takeaways in terms of what's a what's a faux pas. Relying on one person to be the oracle of all difference or to be the oracle of cultural specificity is not going to work and is definitely not safe.
2: Also, oh, oh, sorry. Sorry. I just wanted sorry. to sorry. echo what yeah. Rosie said um, that I think I think it's the how do I put this? I think it's often a gut reaction of institutions that they wanna like put protocols around things or like, you know, have these guidelines or whatever. And actually it's, it's just another form of like um, institutionalizing this thing that um, has suddenly become a problem. And so, you know, as, as we've sort of already iterated, things like listening and actually, I guess, forming a relationship with the people that you're working, that's going to be much more important um, because it's, it's relational and it's one-to-one and, and every situation is going to be different. And actually resisting the urge to institutionalise is actually a really important thing to do.
0: Thank you, Tien. There's a, a lot of discussions at the moment in the uh, public sphere about calling out and calling in and the phenomenon around cancel culture. I'm going to jump into the calling out, calling in question straight to Tien. When do you call out racism and when do you call in?
2: I guess there's two sort of mechanisms. The calling in is sort of having like a, a private conversation um, or email, you know, whatever that form of communication might be, but it's, it's sort of private. And calling out is doing that in a much more public way. I guess personally, and I think for a lot of people, both those tools are in your repertoire. But um, it really depends on the situation. And for me, it's about the perceived power imbalance that might be at play. You know, certainly if it's an institution that's done something that sort of disagree with or I think is quite harmful, it's really a matter of whether I actually have those avenues to someone who actually has institutional power within that organisation who might make a change and whether assessing whether me having a conversation with them is going to actually do anything Um, or if it's just going to sort of go nowhere often I'll sort of try calling in first and if that doesn't do anything or doesn't go anywhere then I will consider calling out and I think a lot of people would very rarely sort of go for calling out immediately if there are other avenues but I think what's really important to acknowledge with This process of calling out, and I think it's helped by social media because it's a very public way to do that, that reaches a lot of people. It's often because the people who are doing the calling out have no other avenues in which to voice their dissatisfaction or um, saying that that something has been very harmful. Um, And so it's often sort of like a last resort or, you know, a very severe imbalance of power.
0: Thank you so much, TN. Just following on from what TN was talking about, I just wanted to quickly ask you, Rosie, about the phenomenon of, of cancel culture. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people have heard about the terminology of cancel culture, but if you're not aware of its origins, it's actually come from Black American feminists on Twitter calling out prominent Black American men about their misogynistic behaviour and calling for them to be cancelled. And I wanted to ask Rosie about this phenomenon and when it's appropriate to cancel something and where it's not and when you should cancel and when you should try and have a conversation and how you can actually have critical conversations that can be constructive but also call for accountability and also whether these discussions are generational because there's definitely been a backlash against this idea of people cancelling culture or calling things out in that. In that public way. Well, thank you for giving me the easy questions. I really appreciate <laughs> oh, it. I know. And, you know, you've got <laughs> one minute to answer. So, you know, right. like,
3: I think at the moment, we're seeing a very fuzzy distinction between the use of the term cancel culture and people calling things out. And that a lot of nuance from that conversation is being lost. The term cancel culture is being used um, more liberally of late. And it's squashing a lot of debate and a lot of conversation, like what Tian was saying, people are, are calling things out when they feel they don't have any other avenues to have the conversations with people in power or organisations that hold a lot of power, that possibly have a lot of sway over their career pathways or uh, set the guidelines and the, the, the tone of their actual even personal safety. We are in a very interesting time where the power dynamic, who gets to have a voice, has changed drastically and social media is a really big facilitator for better and worse in that. And uh, there is some sort of generational um, ease at play or dis-ease amongst that, people who are more used to... um, uh, the social media platforms feel that they can use those mechanisms to their advantage, where ordinarily they wouldn't have had it anywhere near as much of a voice in the conversation, and that 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 hasn't been the case for for a very long time. So people who have, have hold legacy positions of power are feeling challenged in ways that they haven't felt before, and are obviously. Um, Trying to hold on to um, the norms that they feel are inherent. They've been um, not just within Australia, but globally, there have been retaliations to so called cancel culture by people in prominent positions, where they've been arguing that the cancel culture is against their, I wrote this down, is is antithetical to experimentation and risk taking and the fact that artists and people in positions of power make mistakes. Um, and that that cancel culture is squashing debate, Um, whereas I'd like to argue that people calling out and calling out on social media is actually an inherent part of the current debate and needs to be engaged with, and the only way we're going to find our way through it as a whole society, as each of our artistic sectors, is by engaging and having those really detailed
0: conversations. Thank you so much. I think that our time is up but there were a few questions I think for Marinda about whether, yeah, um, whether she's devised a an anti-racism template for an audit or if it's available for somewhere and also um, wouldn't it be great if there was a sector-wide cultural competency rating, maybe something the Australia Council could implement and a first step towards the revolution. That's from Susan Pereira.
1: So, um, firstly, I would like to say that um, I just, you know, very informally applied the cultural competency anti-racism templates that we're working on to the SAMAG board and SAMAG failed. And also, that also answers another question which I have, which is that, as demonstrated, I'm absolutely not afraid of calling out white followers whatsoever. And I have been dragged by my own community On average once a week for the last six years, Um, but I don't actually engage in any kind of public calling out of um, any of my own mob. Um, The anti-racism templates uh, and our review of all of our cultural cultural protocol policies, artists' adherence to them, our staffs' adherence to them, the organisations that we partner with, their adherence to them. it's like um, an investment that we're making as an organisation that doesn't receive a lot of funding, where actually, once again, Indigenous people are doing the labour and the heavy lifting around what is a cultural competency framework. And so people want to access those, then there has to be a negotiation and some reciprocity. Um, But I'm really happy to have that conversation, but it has to have... Um, a reciprocal context to it. And finally, I would say that um, when I worked at the Australia Council almost a decade ago now, there was actually, in the Aboriginal and Torres Islander Arts Department, there was actually a system where if you were a non-Indigenous organisation and you wanted to apply for funding that um, had Indigenous people or Indigenous content or Indigenous thematic you actually had to demonstrate that you had cultural competency. So this is not a new conversation. The Australian Council has those templates. They're like a decade old. Thanks.
3: Yeah, Screen, Thank you. To that Screen Australia also has cultural protocol documents as well, freely available online and for working with Indigenous filmmakers and Indigenous culture as well.
0: We think they're some of the best in the world. The Terry Jenke uh, protocols in particular, when we're been doing our research for the Creative Equity Toolkit. We haven't found better ones anywhere. It was such a pleasure to be here and to kind of have this conversation. Rosie and Marinda and Tien, thank you also for doing this labour and so generously sharing your knowledge and experience and ideas, you know, and the work that you've done over such a long period of time. Thank you so much, Vivian and Adrian and the crew at SAMAD for also supporting us to, to have this conversation. That was Marinda Donnelly, Rosie Lord and Tien Zhang speaking at the SAMAG panel, Racism in the Arts, Reform or Revolution. We've just listened to a bonus episode of The Colour Cycle, a podcast made by Diversity Arts Australia. We're the national organisation advocating for cultural and racial equity in the arts, screen and creative sectors. Find us wherever you listen to your favourite podcasts or visit our website for more diversityarts.org.au a big thank you to SAMAG for facilitating this conversation learn more about their work at samag.org and of course to Vivian Skinner who was a voluntary worker at SAMAG at the time for pulling this all together we really like hearing from our listeners so send us your thoughts comments and feedback either via email or by recording a voice memo on your phone and emailing it to us at info at diversityarts.org.au. And you can help us keep this podcast going by becoming a ColourCycle patron. You can find us at patreon.com slash diversityartsaustralia. The opening and closing track titled You Know What was written by UK-based musician and producer spider J or Spider-Johnson. Additional music was composed by Sarah Mendoza, one of the young digital producers who took part in Diversity Arts' Storycasters program. This podcast is made possible thanks to the support of Create New South Wales and the Australia Council for the Arts and a shout-out to our organisational partner, Information and Cultural Exchange. This episode was produced by Via Caller with production support from Claire Cow. I'm Lena Nahloos, thanks for listening and yalla bye. What? You're never gonna guess what, Who knows?
3: Who knows? You're never gonna guess what.